if you would, and find your way to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, as we continue in our series in the book of Ephesians. If you've been a Christian for any time, any length of time, there may have been a time when you've asked yourself the question, can God really love me with all my faults, with all my failures, can God really love me? I mean, I, 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 you could say that I'm not worthy of God's love. I know who I am. I know what I think. I know things that I've done. But this is where we have to trust God and His goodness. We have to trust the fact that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. I've heard it explained like this when, it, when you're dealing with God's love. God can love you now, the way you are now, in the same way you can love a gold mine. Now you're thinking, a gold mine? Now how many of you would love to own a gold mine? I mean, it'd be like if you were to buy a gold mine, and all of a sudden you step back and you look at this gold mine, and what do you see? You see rocks? You see iron ore, you see dirt, you see muddy, you see this, this miry clay, you see bauxite, you see mineral deposits. It's pretty ugly. But you know what that mine can be. You know what's waiting there for you. You see the imp- imperfections, but you know you're not going to leave it that way. This is your mine, your gold mine. Through refining, there will be purification. You see its inherent worth. You know that the iron ore, the clay, the mineral deposits will be pulled away one day. You know how to fix what is broken. Through heat, through pressure, through refining, you will purify that gold until it's beautiful, until it has value. You love that gold mine even in all of its imperfections because you know what that gold mine will be. That's how God sees us. That's how God loves us. You can trust, you can know that God loves you with all your faults, all your failures, because He's not finished up with us yet. We are not yet who we are going to be He has an amazing plan for us, and that's the title of this message, God's Amazing Plan. And I I wrote this down for a a big idea. You can put this on, uh, on the screen. In God's sovereign plan, He chose us for adoption that we might be redeemed, forgiven, and enlightened, and it's all because of love. In love, God chose us. It's all part of His sovereign plan as we'll see, before the foundation of the world. Now, we saw last week from verse 3 of chapter 1 that Paul said that we are blessed. Look at verse verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing we will ever need to live a victorious Christian life. You don't need any other spiritual blessings than what you've already been blessed with. And we see some of those spiritual blessings in the passage before us. 
Let's look at it, verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, in him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In this passage, he, uh, Paul is describing some of our spiritual blessings. and In fact, they're, they're, it's just rich in doctrine. So we're going to look at these spiritual blessings. We're going to look at this doctrine. We're going to look at five, this doctrine. We're going to look at just five of them today. Here's the first spiritual blessing. He has chosen us. He has chosen us. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him, he being God. God chose us. We didn't choose him. And that fact, that word chose, it means to select to call out for oneself, to choose out. This is also known as the doctrine of election. God is the choosing agent. We don't choose ourselves. God chose us. He makes it very clear here. So what is election? Well, I thought I'd go to some great theologians and ask them, and Wayne Grudem in his book on systematic theology says this about election. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. It was God's sovereign plan before the foundations of the earth that he would choose those to be saved. That is the doctrine of election. God is the one that chooses. In fact, Scripture clearly teaches that God chooses to be saved before they are born and ultimately places them in the book of life. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us that salvation is a gift. It's something we must receive. Now this verse, among many others in the Bible, sets up this huge tension between the sovereignty of God in salvation and man's responsibility to respond. Two huge issues that theologians have argued about for generations. Man's responsibility, God's sovereignty. People say, well, don't I just have the free ability to choose? But the Bible clearly teaches salvation is of whom? God. But it also teaches that man is responsible for his decisions. God holds us responsible to respond. But therein lies the tension. You're thinking, it can't be both, can it? Well, 
Listen to what John MacArthur says. He says, the paradox of divine election and human decision can only be reconciled, can be reconciled only in the mind of God. It's not our responsibility to resolve it. We must allow God to be sovereign. Now, here's the question. You either believe that God is sovereign or you don't. And if you don't, that's a whole other issue. That's a problem because God is sovereign. He is God. We are not. In the beginning, God created man in his time, in his, in his power. I love what uh, Spurgeon says about these two doctrines, man's responsibility and the sovereignty of God. He says they're like two rail tracks that don't meet until they get to heaven. You, you can look down a straight railway track, and eventually in the horizon they come together. And that's what Spurgeon is saying. We don't reconcile them, God does. In fact, listen to what Warren Wiersbe says. He says, does the sinner respond to God's grace against his own will? No. He responds because God's grace makes him willing to respond. The mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility will never be solved in this life. Both are taught in the Bible. Both are true. And both are essential. And, and we see that so clearly in, 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 in John chapter 6, verse 37. Listen, listen to what Jesus is saying. He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. All that the Father gives to me, all that the Father chooses that he gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Charles Spurgeon was asked, in fact, let me, before I go talk about that, um, uh, J.I. Packer wrote a book called, he wrote a book dealing with this whole issue, the tension between the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. It's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's one of the greatest books dealing with this, 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 this tension. And he calls it an antinomy. An antinomy is two seemingly opposite points that work perfectly together. The Bible asserts both truths side by side as ultimate facts. In fact, Spurgeon was asked if he could reconcile the two truths together, and this is what he said. He says, I never reconcile friends. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They're not uneasy neighbors. They're not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They're friends. God is the one that chooses. That is the doctrine of election. But he also holds us responsible to embrace that truth. Now, all this to say that we must be careful about putting ourselves in theological boxes and using labels that aren't in the Bible the fact is, we need to learn to live in the tension and be blown away that God in his sovereignty would even choose us. It, it, should, it, should, it should warm our hearts. It should blow us away. It should make us so thankful. We had nothing to do with it. It was all God's grace. In fact, if you look around the room, you realize none of us deserve it. But how do I know? Actually, Paul tells us in this verse. He says, even as he chose us in him, 
Here it is, before the foundation of the world. So we were chosen before the foundation of the world. It, had, it could have nothing to do with our merit. Now, some people may say, well, that's because he knew that we would respond in a positive way, but that's, so that's why he chose us. That's not, what, that's not what the Scripture teaches. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He did not predestine us to election because he knew we would embrace him. He predestined us because he's God. And there is security in that since there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. And hear me on this. There's nothing we can do to lose our salvation. We actually even sang about that earlier. We have security in Christ. If you are in the Lord, your, your eternal destiny is secure. And that truth should not cause us to live in any way we desire, but it should cause us to live in a way that brings honor and glory to God. So we not only see that God is the choosing agent, but we see why he does it. Notice what it says. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that here it is, that we should be holy and blameless before him. There was a reason why he chooses us. And that is that we should be holy and blameless. At salvation, Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us. So we are positionally holy and blameless. That's how God sees us. Now practically, we got a long way to go. Practically, we have, we have a lot of failures. We have a lot of faults. But the fact is, God knows that we're not going to stay that way. We're now on a path. It's called sanctification. We become more and more like Christ. The gold mine, it's ugly. It's rocks. It's iron ore. It's clay. But he knows there'll be a day we'll be like this refined gold bars. Perfect and pure. The fact is, we now have the Holy Spirit in us that empowers us to flee from sin and to walk in righteousness. And as we get to chapters 4 through 6, it's all about how we now live based on what Christ has done for us. So we should rejoice in the fact that we are chosen. And so Paul moves from being chosen to the result of being chosen. And that's what we see in verses 5 and 6. Listen to what he says. Let me start again in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In Christ, you are now part of God's family. Notice what it says. He predestined us for adoption. You have a whole new pedigree. You are, you are, you are better than any blue blood line of, of family that you ever thought you might be a part of. And the fact is, you're more than citizens. You are more than, you're more than servants. You are a child of God. We sang about that. In fact, listen to what John 1.12 says. Jesus says, or John says, but to all who did receive him, who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. In Christ, we are adopted. We have a new family. We have a new pedigree. 
we have a whole new life. And now we have intimate access into the Father. And our access happened at the moment that we were born again, that we were regenerated. We received Christ as Lord and Savior. We have a couple families in the church right now that have adopted children. Those children immediately became part of their families. They had a new name. That's what happens to us when we receive Christ. A child is brought into a family and given the same rights as a child that is born into that family. And God did this through Jesus, and it pleased him. Look again at verse 5. He says, in love, he predestined us before, um, uh, before the foundations of the world for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ. It only happens through Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. says, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He chose us and adopted us to be his children. He made that choice before the creation of the world with the result that one day we would stand before him holy and blameless. And notice it says that we have been adopted in the past tense. We were a uh, He predestined us for adoption as sons. The fact is, we can immediately begin to claim our inheritance and enjoy our spiritual wealth. We don't have to wait. We have a new family. That family is the family of God. We're members of God's household. We're members of the church. And Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. Now, I just want to stop for a minute. So often I think that we misunderstand the importance of church. Now you're here, so I may be singing to the choir, even though I won't sing. But the fact is, the church is the place that we've been born into. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The the importance of the church is to encourage one another, to love one another, to build up one another. Um, Blake Bornstein's not here today. He was on the phone with a friend of his last night for a couple hours, and he ended up getting on a plane to fly to Sacramento this morning. This is a, a friend that we were praying for for years. Blake knew him from school and from work. Finally gets married, has a child. He comes to Christ. We were so excited. It was, it was incredible. And then s- shortly thereafter, he moved to Sacramento. Never got plugged into a church never had accountability, never had community. And then all of a sudden, things started to fall apart. Last night, he was at a crisis, and he only knew one person to call, and that was Blake. I'm thankful that he had Blake to call, but the reality is he should have had his local church family, and that's the importance of having a local church family, people that can hold you accountable, that can can hold your arms up, that can can love on you, that can weep with you, that that can laugh with you. That is the church. We are called to be the church, to love one another. And the fact is, when we are adopted, we are adopted into the family of God, the local church. God is our Father. All the other people, all the other saints are our brothers and sisters. And you see, in the, in, in, even in the book of Acts, that they, were always, they always became part of a local church. 
Well, this has all been part of God's amazing plan. First spiritual blessing he chose us. Second spiritual blessing he has adopted us. Third spiritual blessing he has redeemed us. He has redeemed us. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood now. Because of God's choosing and adoption in the past, today we have redemption. We are redeemed. Now, what does the word redemption mean? It means deliverance by payment of a price. It's deliverance by payment of a price. Now, during the height of the uh, American slave trade, in fact, if you want to read some really difficult books, just read books on the American slave trade. These traders would go into these African communities and they would force men to uh, just force them by, uh, at, at gunpoint to leave their homes and they would put them on these ships, pack them in in horrific situations and they would take them to the West Indies and then from the West Indies, if they survived, they would bring them into the United States and then they would sell them as slaves and as soon as they were sold as a slave, they were no longer their own. You were under bondage for life. There was nothing you could do to be set free. Your only chance of freedom is if somebody bought you, if they paid a price to buy you away and set you free. Then you would be redeemed. And so Paul says here, in him we have redemption. See, this is the condition of man. We are born in bondage to sin. We are slaves to sin, the Bible tells us. It's a condition in which we have no hope. It's a condition that has separated us from God. It is a condition that has put us under God's wrath with no hope but for Jesus Christ. In God's mercy and in his sovereign plan, the Father sent God the Son into this world, the spotless lamb, to live a perfect, sinless life and to die as a sacrifice in our place on the cross. His death redeemed us from the bondage of our sins. His death on the cross was God's satisfaction for sin once and for all. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 6.20 says. Paul says, for you were bought with a price. That's redemption. The death of Jesus Christ, which should never, never be taken for granted, bought our freedom from God's wrath. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He became sin who knew no sin that we might receive the righteousness of God. Martin Luther calls that the great exchange. That is when at at the cross, Christ's perfect righteousness was, was laid upon us and our sin and our ugliness was laid upon Jesus Christ. In fact, we're in Ephesians. If you just go back a couple pages, you'll be in in Galatians chapter 4. I want you to look at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 4, Paul says this. But when the fullness of time had come, at God's perfect time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then here it is. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir 
through God. That's an amazing passage. When you really sit there and comprehend it, in God's perfect plan, before the foundations of the world, God chose us for adoption to be redeemed. It's an amazing thing. In fact, Jesus knew why God sent him into the world. He says in, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, he says, For the Son of God, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to be what? To be a ransom for many. He was the ransom that was paid for our freedom. So who is redeemed? We are redeemed when we consciously turn from our sins, confess them, and turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's called repentance. We turn from our sins, turn from ourselves, and turn to Jesus Christ. And the fact is, until a person understands their need for redemption, they, they, they see no need for Redeemer. And that's why it's so important that, to talk about the fact that our sins have separated us from God, and we are under God's wrath facing eternity in hell. The fact is, in Christ you have been set free from sin. And some of you might be thinking, then why do I feel like I'm still a slave to sin? It's a good question. The reality is you've been set free from the power of sin. 1 John 4, 4 says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Anybody know what this is? A little bit early in the season for us to be wearing these, right? What is it, a glove? How much power does this glove have? That glove just sitting there has no value. I mean, it's, it was created to keep us warm. It was created to look cool. It was created to catch a football maybe. It was created to, to shovel a ditch, whatever it was created for. But it has no inherent power. But that's like us. But the minute we receive Jesus Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so you put it on and you realize if you can't get it on, you didn't kill that lady. You're OJ and you didn't kill that lady. But if you can get it on, you're guilty. No, but see, all of a sudden, that glove has power. And when we allow ourselves to be controlled by the Spirit, we have the power, all the power we need to live a life that brings glory to God, to, to flee sin, to endure uh, suffering, to experience victory, to overcome sin. You have the power. You just need to tap into it. In fact, in Deuteronomy 6.23, God says, I didn't bring you out of bondage so you could wander in the wilderness. He says, I brought you out so I could bring you in. See, God's desire is that we don't sit here and continue to, to struggle in our sin. He wants us to enter into the promised land. And God redeems us to have victory over our sin. He wants us to bring us into the promised land and enjoy all of its benefits. His blood has been shed, past tense, and your redemption is today present tense. Look at verse 7 again. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood. It is his blood that was shed on the cross that shows that we have been redeemed. I don't know about you guys, but the more I think about some of these spiritual blessings, these doctrines of God, all it does is just fire me up about God. Because I didn't deserve this. 
So he has chosen us. He's adopted us. He's redeemed us. Fourth, he has forgiven us. He has forgiven us. Verse 7 again. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood. Here it is. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. See, redemption provides for us forgiveness. Forgiveness goes hand in hand with redemption. We can't have one without the other. To forgive means this. It means to give up the right to punish someone for a transgression. The minute I have forgiven you, I have given up my right to punish you in any way. The minute God forgives us for our sins, he has given up the right to punish us. Forgiveness is an amazing doctrine. It means to carry away. Forgiveness means to carry away. It's to pardon another in spite of their transgression or sin. The truth is that our sin deserves divine punishment because it it violates God's law, God's holy character. And God forgiving us is an act of grace. Once again, we don't deserve it. But God is a gracious, merciful God. In fact, in the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament law, there's a whole system of sacrifices to try to cover our sins, to try to make up for our sins. And then once a year, they had the Day of Atonement. Today it's known as Yom Kippur. It's when they they would bring two goats into the temple. One was sacrificed. The blood was shed. The other, the priest would put his hands on the top of the head of that goat, signifying that he was was placing the sins of the whole nation on that goat, and then they would send him off into the wilderness. That was the scapegoat. The price for their sin was paid. Their sin was carried away. But because they were slaves to sin, they would go out and sin again the next day. The sacrifice was only a temporary covering. For their sin. But Christ died to carry away our sin once and for all. Jesus' death on the cross was God's satisfaction for sin once and for all. In Christ, we've been forgiven all of our sins by the blood of Christ once and for all. In fact, Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And some of you might be thinking, yeah, but I got a lot of sin. And I think we could all say that. But yeah, God's got a lot of grace. Where sin abounds, grace much more. In fact, he even says it here in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And here it is. According to the riches of his grace. Let me ask you. What's the limit on God's grace? There is none. So as much sin as we may have had in our past, God's grace is so much more. And and that's the good news. Yeah, for sure. Now, the fact is, he gives more grace than we'll ever need. I want to just say this, and we're going to spend some time on it in another message, but forgiven people should be forgiving people. Forgiven people should be forgiving people. In fact, forgiven people should be the most forgiving people there are. 
fact, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, as Christ has forgiven you, so you also must do. One of the greatest challenges to a Christian living a victorious life is unforgiveness. It becomes like this. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12 says it's, it's like a root that can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. As Christ has forgiven you, so you must do. How has Christ forgiven us? Unconditionally. We go to God. We ask him to forgive us of our sins. What does he do? He forgives them. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to, and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I mean, we're cleansed. The fact is, and you could just read Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35 about the parable of the unforgiving servant. How, how could we who've been forgiven so much not forgive others where what they've done to us doesn't even compare to what we've done to the Lord? All right. Final blessing. He has enlightened us. He has enlightened us. I love this now. He, Paul explains that as believers, we are given insights into the mysteries of God. Look at verse 8. Actually, let me go back to 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. I love that word, lavished. God has lavished on us. His grace in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. When it talks about a mystery, this is not a mystery that is incomprehensible. This is a mystery that has not been revealed until God revealed it to us. In fact, I believe it's Hebrews talks about that we've been given truths that the old prophets were looking towards, but now we have God's revealed word. In fact, so much of Ephesians is about the fact that God has revealed this mystery to us, the mystery that, that both Jews and Gentiles can become one, the mystery that, that Jesus is the sacrifice that would come into this world and save man from his sin. He has revealed this to us. And you know what's pretty amazing? In Christ, to a Christian, the world makes sense. Before Christ, there is so much that doesn't make sense. Try to get somebody that, that has not read the Word of God to explain to you what's going on in this world. But it all makes sense. God has revealed to us. He has enlightened us. Listen to what he says here. He has lavished on us all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Who is saved according to his purpose, not ours, which he set forth in Christ as a plan, this amazing plan for the fullness of time. And here also, he is uniting all things in him. And that last day, in fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about how he's broken down the dividing wall of separation. In God's timing, God blessed his beloved with wisdom and insight so we could know his perfect will. 
God has peeled back the curtain of his sovereign plan and he's given those he chose a glimpse into that plan. Hallelujah. It's an amazing thing. I mean, before I, before I came to Christ, I did not have a clue about God or what God's plans were, his will was. But God has revealed that to us through his word. Now, now think about what you have been blessed with. If you're in Christ, you've been chosen. You've been adopted. You've been redeemed. You've been forgiven. You've been enlightened. God has blessed you beyond measure. You have infinite worth. You are loved by God. If you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't feel like I am. Remember the gold mine. You aren't what you're going to be. You will be holy and blameless before him. You are, this, you are beautiful in God's sight. So don't live as if you must do something to achieve your worth, but live as a child of the king, loved and cherished and beautiful and cared for and redeemed and forgiven and rich in wisdom and insight. Rest in his love. See yourself as significant because you belong to the greatest family in the world. It was all part of God's amazing plan. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. And I want us just to take a minute as they're coming up to comprehend the riches of His grace. I believe that when we truly understand what God has done for us, it becomes a lot more difficult for us to complain to criticize, to critique. We should be loving. We should be forgiving. We should desire to be holy and blameless before him. We should be a people that wants to bring him glory. We should also be a people that wants to worship him from the depth of our hearts. Father, thank you for this amazing word that you have given us. In Ephesians, so rich in doctrine, but we know that it is doctrine that drives how we're to live. So Lord, I just pray we would continue to have a deeper understanding of you, a deeper appreciation of you, and a deeper love for you. Father, for those of us that maybe have not really comprehend these truths, that today we would just allow them to work deeply in our hearts, not just inform our minds, but move our hearts and impact our hands. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.